What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a fascinating show for you today. I'm really excited. I have with me a pilot, not a physician, so different and really exciting. I have Matt Renz. Matt is a pilot for a major U.S. airline and has been flying professionally for the past 12 years. He's been a captain, a chief pilot, and he's helped draft flight manuals and other safety systems for airlines. He is really interested and been thinking a lot about aviation safety and how those aviation safety principles can help reduce preventable errors in other fields, especially in medicine. And so I'm really excited to have him today because we talk a lot about thinking about aviation and medicine, but usually it's just us doctors talking about that. And I at least haven't had a conversation with a pilot with someone who actually is in the aviation industry about this. And and Matt is, I think, the perfect guest because he's both done the flying and the safety uh, preparation and safety manual preparation, but he's also now taken this interest in medicine. And so I'm really excited. Matt, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me today. So why don't we start by just introduce yourself a little more than I did to the audience. Let people know, you know, what exactly do you do? How'd you get there? What was the path? And then how'd you specifically start to get interested in safety and medicine? Uh, sure. So, um, so yeah, like you said, I've been, been uh, flying, I've uh, been an airline pilot for about 12 years. Uh, and uh, recently I've um, uh, just started becoming interested in, in uh, some of these uh, safety principles that apply to human factors and preventable errors. Um, I, I read uh, uh, Dr. Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, which uh, talked a lot about uh, some of these principles and these ideas and uh, thought it was really interesting and just saw the potential overlap that that was there. And um, after looking into it a little bit more and, and reading more about it, I, I sort of realized that, um, you know, they're, despite the potential overlap, they're, they're really... Uh, uh, is still a lot of uh, value that's uh, left to, to be added, in, in my opinion, um, in, in healthcare. And so um, I, I think it's a really interesting topic to talk about. And uh, hopefully my goal is to uh, is to help uh, hospitals and, and providers learn more about these safety systems, uh, how to utilize them and how they can implement their own versions of them. That's great. And so, you know, I imagine you started off uh, and Correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably started off as a pilot, maybe mostly doing flying. And then it sounds like you read uh, the Checklist Manifesto, got interested in that. Um, you know, do how much of what pilots do every day is, you know, really thinking hard about this, the safety stuff? Like, it sounds like you started actually getting involved in the in the preparation of safety manuals and and that kind of stuff. So did you take a special interest in this even within the aviation industry? Uh, I, I did. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic to me. Um, this, these types of principles are, uh, are, are really ingrained in the culture of aviation. And, and we're fortunate in that way that, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of work and a lot of effort put in. Um, they've been refined over, over the past several decades. Uh, so there's uh, already a tremendous amount of groundwork that's been laid uh, well before I, I entered the industry. Um, and so the, the nice thing about, uh, about, aviation about being a pilot is, you know, there's always, uh, there's always more that you can do, um, you know, besides just flying. So there's, there's lots of, uh, lots of, lots of jobs that uh, require that expertise that can be done. And so I, I took an interest in that and uh, uh, it's, it's been an interesting experience and um, yeah, it's uh, sort of brought me, uh, brought me uh, here today. Well, that's great. I'm really glad you did. So why don't we start by, give us just a general overview of preventable error philosophy. What does that mean? And what do we, you think need to know about it? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, in, in complex team environments like the operating room or a labor and delivery floor, uh, a fact of life is you know, humans become more susceptible to making errors in those complex environments. And the more complexity there is, uh, the easier it is to make a mistake. And that's not a product of someone's training or skill, but just our, our limitations as humans. And when an error does happen and we try to learn how to prevent it from happening again, uh, it's natural to focus on the complexity of the case itself. You know, we can take the position that uh, because of how complex a task is, uh, the root cause of that adverse outcome must lie somewhere within the intricacies of the technique or the experience uh, or judgment of the person who made the mistake. Uh, but preventable errors are, are really a function of human fallibility, not clinical skill or experience. So when you look at aviation incidents or adverse outcomes in surgical cases, for example, you know, the, the flight crew or the attending physician is generally not inexperienced. Uh, these events happen to experienced, skilled professionals who are very highly regarded by their peers. And, uh, you know, they still make, uh, they still can make an error that results in an adverse outcome. So, you know, just telling people to do better or make fewer mistakes is, is definitely not the antidote to, to this problem. Preventable error is uh, really a product of human fallibility, not skill or experience. And so, uh, you know, the answer lies in addressing those, those human factors that result in human error. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And am I right that this also gets a kind of system design, right? Because you know, we traditionally in medicine used to be very prone to blame, as you say, to blame the person, you know, a doctor or a nurse or whoever it is screwed up. It's their fault, right? Maybe they need to be fired or disciplined in some way. And what we realize now, and I'm so glad we have, is that that's very rare. It's usually that the system was a poor one and that they, the person was one piece of a system that was poorly designed. And that uh, seems to me such an important advance to really think about it's usually not someone doing a bad thing so much as it is a system that was designed poorly. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly correct. And, you know, sometimes there, there, there are different ways to, uh, you know, to uh, try to assess that and to try to uh, uh, find flaws in those systems. And, and, you know, we've, we've learned a lot over the past several decades um, and uh, it's, it's really, it's important to uh, try to, uh, maximize the uh, or minimize the the potential for preventable error and try to you know acknowledge that uh, you know we we do have faults we can make mistakes and you know the 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 whole nature of a preventable error is that it was unintentional and you know obviously we we try our best and we try to make as few mistakes as possible but there are um, there are inherent uh, features of you know complex complex environments and inherent features of just hu human nature and and uh, and behavior that uh, that do increase the probability of those errors and so there, there's there are also ways to uh to, to counter them as well great so i'm excited to get into that why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of aviation safety history specifically you know what is the era of preventable accidents and how does safety improvement kind of come about in aviation sure so um so several decades ago in the 70s and 80s, uh, the aviation industry experienced a, a human factors dilemma that is uh, pretty similar to the one that medicine faces today, actually. And this is all, you know, uh, public information that, uh, that anyone can read about. Um, but th there was an alarming number of accidents that were involving perfectly airworthy airplanes uh, that were the result of, you know, improper workload management, basic human error. Uh, generally speaking, communication and standardization were, were poor. No one wanted to speak up or question the captain. Uh, some examples of those. In 1972, uh, there was Eastern 401, which crashed into the Everglades on approach into Miami because all three crew members were fixated on a landing gear indication light, which ultimately just turned out to be a, a burnt-out light bulb. Uh, in 1977, uh, two 747s collided on the runway in, in Tenerife, Spain, and 600 people died because uh, ultimately one of the captain or one of the captains in the accident failed to communicate his understanding of an ATC clearance uh, effectively or listen to his first officer. Um, so NASA teamed up with the airlines and pilot unions to address this human factor problem, and uh, collectively the. Uh, industry started emphasizing several principles uh, that were intended to mitigate human error and help people uh, work together more effectively. Uh, summed up, those principles were an emphasis on proper checklist usage, an emphasis on communicating and utilizing resources more effectively. We call this crew resource management, uh, no fault safety reporting, and the sterile flight deck rule. Uh, so 
after this shift, we've seen enormous improvement in aviation safety. Uh, between 1980 and 1990, the uh, number of accidents dropped by about half. Uh, and not only did these changes help prevent uh, preventable errors from turning into accidents, but they also uh, proved to be very effective at giving crews the tools that they, uh, that they needed to successfully handle serious problems that were outside of their control and that were not preventable. And so the lesson there is really in any complex environment, especially when you have more than one brain in the room, uh, there's a there's a science and a and a technique to reducing the probability of errors and getting the most out of that combined experience as as we saw with that with that transformation. Um, yeah, as you know, a, aviation has an incredible safety record today, um, but these techniques are are not specific to aviation. They're really just based in principles that mitigate human error in general, and they can be applied to, to any complex environment where people work together as a team. Right. This is such important stuff. And we're going to go through uh, some of these key parts one by one. So let's start with checklists, because I know that's a big part of it. It's what got you in really interested in the medical uh, implications of what you do um, when you read uh, Atul Gawande's uh, checklist manifesto. So let's start with that. Um, when we think about checklist usage, um, tell us, you know, what, how is it used? What's the purpose and intent of checklists and how, how are they used, you know, specifically in aviation for you all? Absolutely. So a checklist essentially serve two purposes. Uh, they trap and correct errors, but they also allow the user to allocate more mental focus on the complex elements of a procedure. So instead of trying to keep track of the mundane, but still critical steps, in your head, like maybe for in, in, in healthcare, for example, like, you know, did we admit uh, before surgery, did we remember to administer the prophylaxis or is the emergency blood supply standing by? The checklist is a tool to liberate you from uh, from having to, to uh, liberate you from, from the burden of that. And you can redirect that bandwidth that you might otherwise allocate on those, those mundane aspects to the more complex pressing matters of the case. Um, it, it's still it's still a tool and it's not a guarantee that you didn't make a mistake. Uh, it's just an additional layer of safety. Uh, so we have uh, we have we have normal checklists and, and non-normal checklists. Um, and uh, normal checklists are for the routine uh, procedures that we do every day, and non-normal checklists are are for the abnormal or the emergent uh, emergency procedures that uh, we may never experience, uh, hopefully, uh, in real life. Uh, and uh, they they have uh, you know the, the two have very different philosophies. Interesting. Okay. So I, that's, I've actually, uh, very interested to hear about that because I wasn't aware of that different terminology, normal and non-normal. So, uh, let's start with normal checklists. Although b before I ask you about that, you know, I love this idea of kind of freeing up mental bandwidth because I think this is true so often, even in things I'm thinking about, you know, if I am trying to go to sleep at night and I, and something pops into my head, Oh, you know, I have to remember to tell somebody this tomorrow. If I, if I keep thinking about it, I'm never going to get to sleep, but if I just write it down, uh, then I can forget about it, right? I can reallocate my brain to sleep and then not have to be focused on it. And it seems like the same idea that rather than me sitting there trying to think, okay, did I do all the things I know I need to do? If I, if I have a checklist, it allows me to think about other things and know that I can use that checklist as a little bit of a crutch and make sure I don't forget anything. So freeing up bandwidth seems like a really important aspect of these kinds of things. So, all right, let's start with uh, normal so, checklist. So you said a normal checklist is something that is applicable to a daily, something you do every day. Is that right? Exactly. So, um, so that, that exactly. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, um, when, when I say normal checklist, I'm, I'm referring to this specific category of checklists that get used in aviation, but, but they're, they're for the things that we do every single day. Um, you know, we, we, uh, uh it's, uh, the, the, it's it's for the the routine, the mundane, the things that we you know we have memorized. It's but but they're still they're still critical. They're still important. So um, these checklists don't get used like an instruction manual. We we don't read off each step of a checklist one by one as we get the airplane ready. That's just not necessary. We we, we just don't need to do that. But after we perform a series of tasks from memory, then we use a normal checklist to to trap any mistakes. So, uh, for example, after 30 to 45 minutes of pre-flight prep, a, a pre-flight checklist would, would take about 30 seconds to perform to, to uh, trap uh, some of the critical but mundane uh, things. And again, it does not guarantee that you did not make a mistake dur during that uh, pre-flight prep. It's just it's an added layer of safety to try to tra uh, trap uh, some of the, the critical steps. Um, and so the closest thing that would would come to mind here in terms of the overlap with healthcare would be the uh, the WHO's safe surgery checklist. Um, 
the the WHO developed and introduced the safe surgery checklist in uh, in 2008. Um, it was designed to improve three main elements of surgery, anesthesia, safety, infection control, and surgical team communication. Uh, in an eight hospital study, the usage of a customized version of the safe surgical, surgical checklist uh, reduced death rates by nearly 50% and inpatient complications by uh, about 30%. Um, you also have uh, Dr. Pronovost's checklist to prevent central line infections that was part of the Michigan uh, Keystone Project. Within three weeks of the implementation of that checklist, uh, their quarterly infection rate dropped to zero. And within 18 months, the project saved an estimated $175 million in, in over 1,500 lives. Yeah, pretty impressive. So I'm, it's you said, let me make sure I understand, that for these checklists, because it's something you're doing every day and that you, in theory, already have memorized, you do the thing and then you go back. So I'm imagining, for example, if I'm using this to you know, um, get ready to place the central line, right? And and this isn't exactly how we do it with central lines, but I'm just imagining. And th then I might, for example, get everything ready, but before I actually pierce the skin, I then look at this checklist and make sure I did everything to prepare for what I'm about to do. So I'm catching any errors that I may have made. That's what you're saying you use these normal checklists for. Exactly right. So for something that you do every day, it just doesn't make sense to pull out a, you know a step-by-step to-do list to to uh you know to to tell someone how to do something it's something that you're an expert in you're very good at uh you you know how to do you're probably will will do a do a better quality job if you just do it on your own but uh, you know but but before you uh before you move forward use that checklist just to make sure you didn't forget any any key steps um and and that's uh it's it, it's an efficient way to do it i think you know some people when they think of checklist, they think of you know, literally uh, a piece of paper with boxes that they go, okay, step one, check, step two, check. But that, that isn't really necessarily the most elegant or effective way to do it. Um, and you know, there are some other types of checklists, which you know, we'll uh, hopefully talk about later. But um, that's uh, just in terms of normal checklists, it's a very effective way to make sure the everyday routine things that we do every day and you know, we we that we still uh, make mistakes in, um, it, it's a good way to add a layer of safety there. Right. Yeah. I actually teach my residents to use a, uh, and you know, I do write it down for them. So it's actually on paper, but also in their head to do what I call an ABC, ABC kind of checklist after they have kind of done the intubation and, and they think they're ready to kind of be settled in, in the OR, they go back in over this ABC, ABC. So they're looking at, you know, um, airway, breathing circulation, and then anesthesia, the body position and neuromuscular blockade, and then Celsius or, or temperature regulation. And I tell them, you know, so this is exactly what you're talking about, right? Is do all the things that you 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 know to do, and then just use this to make sure you didn't miss anything. So that sounds exactly like a normal checklist. I just I didn't ever have the terminology to call it that. Okay, right. So let's talk about how to maximize checklist value. What do you what do you what do you recommend people do to really get the most out of? It? Sure. So um, you know. Uh... We, we talked about those couple different examples and, and the, the really impressive results. So you know, the opportunity is definitely there. Um, and, and these initiatives really are, are arguably only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the value that they can really add. Um, if you look at the WHO's safe surgery checklist, it's, it's a great starting point. Uh, but if you consider just how powerful these tools can be with a little sophistication, you realize uh, that, that it's, it's still actually a, pretty primitive. Um, if you look at it, it, it combines uh, three checklists into one. It's not specific to a procedure, a department, or a facility. Uh, it combines checklist items with briefing items, and it's sort of written more of a like a step-by-step -step list of to-dos rather than precise verification steps. And that this is not any, uh, you know, to, to mean any sort of disparaging to, to the uh, to, to the physicians and the experts that wrote it. Like I said, it's, it's a fantastic starting point, and uh, it, it has um, proven to be extremely successful. Uh, but, you know, going, going from zero to one is, it, it, uh, with, with a new, with a new philosophy like this is difficult. And there, there's always, uh, there's always ways to, to improve things. And so, um, and, and the WHO actually acknowledges this in their implementation guide. They actually encourage, uh, modifications by local practices. So, um, 
is to, to maximize a checklist program's potential, you, you need to you really need to combine you know medical expertise with the knowledge of how a checklist should be designed, and which is what I'd sort of like to get into here in a little. Now, I'm not a healthcare provider. I'm not in a position to say what items should go on a medical checklist, but my goal is to help uh, providers use their own expertise to take the content that they feel is medically relevant and then design a, a checklist that is effective. So, you know, it might seem like just listing uh, key steps on a checklist and then having providers reference it is, is all there is to it. And at, at its core, that is the essence of what a checklist is all about. But uh, in aviation, uh, checklist usage is a very systematic science. There's a method to the way in which checklists are read, uh, the type of checklist that gets used for a given procedure, selecting the events that trigger its use. Uh, selecting the optimal point in a procedure to use them, and then, uh, of course, the design and the readability of the physical checklist itself. Great. So tell me a little bit about how, and, and I, I hear you saying, you know, you're not going to be able to say specifically what should be on a medical checklist, but how do people who know how to do this go about selecting what should be on a checklist? So you're saying it's not just take everything, right, every single tiny step in the thing and put it all on the checklist. So how do you decide what goes on there and what doesn't? Exactly. So there, there's there is a method to choosing what items go on there. You know, checklists vague or that combine procedures aren't really that useful. Uh, but checklists that are too long and drawn out are are tedious, and they're really often not followed that correctly. So checklists should really address a specific phase of a specific procedure and be precise in what they verify. So it's important to remember what the goal is. It's to reduce preventable errors increase bandwidth and promote standardization. So with this in mind, you might walk through a procedure and look for uh, walk through a procedure in your head and, and look for items that are good candidates for checklist usage. So uh, checklist items should capture steps that are simple, correctable, and mundane. So you might ask yourself as you're going through a process, what steps, if forgotten, would increase the risk of morbidity or an adverse outcome. So things like, you know, equipment tests and supply prep you know, are, are perfect candidates for that. Um, you know, things that are just more mundane steps rather than rather than uh, clinical or, uh, or professional technique. If you look on the WHO safe surgery checklist, some of those items uh, would be, you know, identity and consent. Uh, anesthesia and apparatus prep would, although I'd probably argue that that in and of itself can probably be its own checklist with the amount of, you know, uh, complexity and sophistication there. Uh, pulse ox, blood supply, airway equipment, prophylaxis, imaging, sterility status, those types of things are uh, things that were included on the WHO safe surgery checklist that are, are, are great items to, uh, uh, to, to include on a checklist. Okay. Now, how, let's say that I want to include, uh, you know, equipment check. You know, how do I know whether to just have that or whether to say, you know, okay, individual items, pulse ox check, you know, ventilator check, suction check, et cetera. You know, do you how how specific do you want to get versus broad in a given in a given item? Uh, that's a great question. So I, I think uh, first it it depends on the uh, on the on the individual, how critical each item is, um, you know. If, if we're talking about an item uh, that if it's single-handedly left out, uh, it could it could result uh, in an adverse outcome or seriously increase the risk of a procedure. Um, if in and of itself it's critical enough uh, to do that, you, you probably want to include it on there. Um, just saying, you know, equipment check, if that, if, you know, we do have things like that in aviation where it's just, you know, a, uh, one item that collectively references a, a lot of things. And, and it, it just um, if if there are uh, a, a very lengthy number of steps that uh, are, are, you know, collectively really testing one thing, um, that's probably a, a good candidate to include as one line item because you could sort of think of it as one thing. Um, you know, it's sort of binary. It's either collectively it's all it's all done or it's not. Um, but uh, with with critical things like pulse ox or, you know, um, things that uh, could, could really, you know, increase the risk of a procedure um, that even if it's part of a, 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 a larger test, um, you, you probably want to include uh, uh, by themselves. Okay. Now you mentioned before triggering events. What is a triggering event? Sure. So, um, uh, so it, it Triggering event is, is essentially a suitable opportunity to, to stop and read a checklist. Um, and it, it actually, it might, might be a little, uh, it might, might be helpful to sort of talk about how uh, a checklist gets read, uh, uh, also to sort of give some, some context to that. So, um, so 
how, how is the checklist actually used? The most common uh, method would be what we call a challenge and response checklist. Uh, one person is designated to read the checklist. For us in the flight deck, it depends on the checklist, but uh, you know, in the OR, it would probably be the circulator. Uh, the first thing that we do is, is we open the checklist by reading the title so everyone's clear on uh, what's being verified. Uh, the reader goes down the checklist, reading off each item, and then another person, uh, which is the challenge, and then another person verifies the condition and then, and then responds. Uh, so, like for 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 to use an aviation example, um, for a fuel quantity line item, which is probably on on every pre flight checklist, uh, you know, in, in for uh, that's out there, um, the first officer would read the checklist and read fuel, which would be the challenge, and then the captain would verify the amount of fuel that we're supposed to have, and then. Uh, uh, verify the actual amount that we have on board. And then the checklist would have him respond with those numbers. So he would respond by released with 21.5, 21.5 on board. Um, again, using the WHO safe surgery checklist as, as a, an example uh, for like a pre-induction checklist that verifies the surgical site and procedure. Um, the circulator might read site and procedure verification, which would be the challenge. And then the attending physician could read uh, uh uh, marked and confirmed. So doing it this way uh, versus just reading a piece of paper and, and checking boxes has several benefits. Um, one, it makes everyone a part of it. When everyone's a, a part of, uh, of the procedure, errors are more likely to get caught. Uh, people are more engaged and people feel a, a higher sense of accountability and, and responsibility. Um, the standardized method of verification, uh, it eliminates uncertainty and it makes it clear exactly what is being checked and what the expected condition is. So there's no room for interpretation and there's no question about what someone means or what they're actually checking. So you know, most responses are usually standard, but there, there are uh, ways to account for unique conditions and responses. But the most important thing is that the actual condition is, uh, is, is understood by everyone. So then after the checklist is, uh, is done, the reader closes the checklist and then it announces that it's complete. So it would be like pre-flight checklist complete or pre-induction checklist complete. And again, there's no question as to the status of it. Uh, if, if there's an interruption there, you know, we just, we just restart the checklist. Um, in, in terms of uh, triggering events, um, it, generally they occur after certain steps are, are performed. Uh, and, uh, just to, to trap any mistakes or oversights. So, you know, in aviation, we have multiple normal checklists throughout a flight, which, uh, which occur before we're generally before we're about to begin a new phase or after a series of steps have been performed. So we, we try to look for routine events uh, that occur in a certain procedure or a certain process uh, every single time that would trigger a certain checklist to be read. So it's going to be different with every procedure, but uh, it's the, the important thing is to make sure that the checklist gets done every time at the correct time. And that's why, you know, choosing a, a specific uh, triggering event that uh, triggers the use of this checklist is, uh, is, is a good way to make sure that, that it does. And so give me an example from the flight deck, uh, you know, maybe pre pre-flight, like what, what would trigger a certain checklist? Is it just, you know, yeah, I don't know. What would be a triggering event? Stay with us. We'll be right back. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back, and Matt's going to explain what a triggering event might look like. Sure. So um, once, uh, maybe once uh, a, a briefing is completed for, uh, you know, for, for a departure or, um, or, or an arrival, that, that would be a triggering event. Or, um, you know, if after uh, both engines are started, that could trigger an after-start checklist, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and... Um, uh, so it really depends on uh, on the on the procedure that you're doing, but something that's uh, very routine, you know, that happens every time. Okay, now it's time to do this checklist. 
Yep. So for us, it could be, okay, patient arrived in the OR, that triggers maybe, you know, for example, our, our identical identity verification checklist, right? We want to make sure before we put the patient to sleep that they, and we all agree is that they're the right person. Um, then maybe after they're asleep or, you know, before incision or something, that's another triggering event. Exactly. Exactly. You know, once everyone's ready to go right before the incision, okay, we have everything we need. The next step is to make the incision, you know, pre-incision checklist or something like that. Exactly. So let me ask you, do you ever, you know, I'm thinking for us that this is great uh, and when we have time to do it. And then what happens sometimes, right, is we're under time pressure. And when you're under, you know, for example, maybe the thing started late or whatever's happening. And that makes it really tempting to skip, either skip checklists or or not not go as thoroughly as you could. And I'm wondering, you know, does that ever happen? And feel free to decline to answer. I don't want you to get in trouble with your employer. But, you know, I, I wonder if in the airline industry it ever happens that, I don't know, maybe you the plane was late coming in and you only have a short window to get, I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but to get out before the, the launch window closes or whatever it's called. And, you know, you now normally maybe to go through all your pre-flight checklist would take a half an hour, but now they tell you, you got to be, you know, taxiing out in 15 minutes or something. Does that ever happen? And in that case, you know, is that a real safety risk? Is there a way to kind of prioritize? All right, we only have this much time, so we're going to do these most important ones or, or is it pretty, is that not really doable? Right. No, that, that, those, those time pressures, um, you know, th- those, those exist within, with anything. Uh, but we, we absolutely uh, do not, uh, you know, uh, decline to run a checklist to, to, uh, you know, in the interest of, 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 of time or to, uh, you know, to, to try to, uh, to, to make something happen quicker. Um, the, the checklist get performed every single time, no matter what. And if that results in, you know, an airplane being late or, or something like that, then, then, then it does. But, uh, it's, uh, th- these are things that are, you know, built into, uh, into, into federal aviation regulations. Even actually there's a, there's a, uh, a, a regulation that addresses checklist usage in, um, in the FARs and, uh, the it's, it's something that's written into the standard operating procedure of every single airline, um, that, that, you know, is, is something that will get done every time because we have to, because they, they're so important. Um, now there's, you know, if an emergency happens where there's uh, you know, there's a time critical function, then there, there's ways that we, um, that, that we handle that while still using the checklist and we have standardized ways to, to handle that, which, um, uh, you know, we, we, we could talk about, but in, in terms of uh, normal checklist, they, they get used every single time. That's great. I mean, I think it's so important. If this is important, then it has to be prioritized. And I, I think we could do a better job with that in medicine. All right, let's, let's talk about non-normal checklists. Remind us what those are, how they differ from normal checklists and, and how they function. Sure. So, um, so in, in emergency uh, situations in, in aviation, most responses are, are algorithmized. There are plenty of scenarios that are not that you know require the flight crew to determine their own best course of action. But you know, like medicine, most urgent problems already have a, a set of predefined steps that have been contemplated already as the best course of action. That's where non-normal checklists come in. Uh, so in these situations, uh, first, generally speaking, first we take steps to stabilize the aircraft uh, from from memory. After the aircraft is stabilized. There are longer, more complicated procedures that we we may need to perform according to a, a non-normal checklist. The idea here is once the aircraft is stabilized, it's far more important to get the procedure right than uh, you know than than to do it fast. Um, it's since they it's since these steps, uh, you know, to isolate and and correct the problem are algorithmized, it, it makes sense just to reference a checklist. Uh, so in these cases. Uh, the checklist will have a, a series of, generally speaking, they'll have a series of if-then statements or decision points that will route the user to the correct steps, uh, depending on the conditions. So, you know, in healthcare uh, processes or procedures where the steps are already contemplated, like uh, you know, like a cardiac arrest algorithm or scenarios that physicians will hopefully never see in their entire careers, these can be a very powerful tool that uh, that you know. Uh, eliminate stress, uh, or not eliminate stress, but uh, reduce stress, um, reduce errors, while not delaying the administration or the quality of treatment or care. So, you know, the key is to really is, is to apply the criteria that makes an effective checklist to your clinical knowledge and uh, and your clinical experience to create a program that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I imagine in in the operating room, you know, if a, the patient were to deteriorate or start losing blood during a case, I imagine the response would sort of follow a similar arc. Stabilize the patient first on your own from memory because time is of the essence. But after that, 
you know, the surgical team and the anesthesia team, we need to make sure that after the patient is stable, everything else has been covered, like you know, O2 sat, IV lines, you know, any any vasopressors or anything like that, um, which you could uh, certainly speak uh, speak more to. But I, I imagine it would sort of, um, you know, follow a similar arc there in terms of yeah. prioritizing. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I really like, for example, Stanford has some emergency checklists for the operating room that are great. And I encourage all our residents to have those on their phone. Uh, and we talk about them a lot so that if a, an emergency happens in the operating room, we do exactly what you said. You know, the initial move is, well, first to call for help. And we're very lucky, unlike in an airplane where you only got the people you got, right? You can't call a bunch of other pilots from other airplanes to come join you. We're lucky in the OR. We can do that, at least in an academic center where we have lots of anesthesiologists around. We call for help and we get a ton of help right away coming from from all other areas. And so then we can really say, all right, well, I'm going to work to stabilize things initially. But, hey, could somebody pull up the checklist for, right. you know, whatever we're dealing with, hypoxia, pulmonary embolus, cardiac arrest, whatever it is, so that we can make sure that we're not missing anything uh, along the way? Because, as you say, we really in the midst of a real crisis and all the stress that comes with it, it's really easy, even for experts who have done things, you know, have done these things before to miss steps. So I think that's so important. Um, exactly. And, you know, it's also just important to you know remember that uh, checklists are not, they're a tool to help. They're not, um, they're not intended to micromanage or unnecessarily restrict, uh, for, for us in an emergency, it's written into, into the FARs, into the federal aviation regulations that the captain has the final authority to take any action that they see fit to meet that emergency, including deviating from any checklist or procedure or regulation, just as long as it's to ensure the safe operation uh, of the airplane, just as an attending physician should in the operating room. It's not, you know, they're a tool to, to help not to unnecessarily restrict, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, the, like the waiter that tries to remember your order. You know, anytime I've had, uh, not not to not to not to reduce uh, the, uh, the the importance of it, uh, but you know, I've never had a uh, anytime I've had a waiter, you know, make make a mistake. It's been someone who tried to memorize our order without writing it down, and it's like, you know, what what is that supposed to add? You know, I'd much rather you get it right than than you know just just try to remember. It's a similar philosophy. You know, assuming time is no longer a factor, what's the benefit of only relying on your memory? There there really is none. So. Um, it, it's, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's something that I, I think can really help. Yeah. I couldn't agree more about the restaurants and the waiters. <laughs> please, please <laughs> write it down. Um, and I think you're exactly right. Some people get, I don't know, bristly about checklists. They think, oh, this is supposed to be, you know, take my job or tell me what I have to do. And I think yeah, you're exactly. exactly right. That's not it. It's that if you, if an item on the checklist comes up and you as the person in charge think, no, in this particular situation with this particular patient, I have considered that I'm going to opt out of doing that. That's fine. But it better that exactly. that you, you forgot it because you just didn't think about it. Right. Exactly. That's exactly correct. All right. Tell me about the sterile flight deck rule. What is that? Sure. So, um, again, this is, uh, so, so the sterile flight deck rule, prohibits any non-essential conversation <clears throat> or activity during any critical phase of flight. So critical phase of flight is defined as taxi, takeoff, and landing, as well as any operation below 10,000 feet. Um, so during, uh, and this is all, uh, you know, like I said, this is all built into the into the, into the the federal aviation regulations that anyone can go read about. Um, during this, this uh, era of, of aviation accidents, the invest that a, a contributing factor was that <clears throat> crews were getting distracted during these critical phases. So in 1981, the, the FAA made this a federal regulation. Uh, they, they define what a, a critical phase is and, and what the expectation is of what you, what you were allowed and not allowed to do. So in the operating room, a, a similar rule could help prevent distractions and mistakes. You know, surgeries can be very long. It can be very easy to get you know, distracted at, at the wrong time. But a clearly defined rule regarding when it is acceptable and when it is not acceptable to have people have a separate discussion or even enter and leave the room could help uh, reduce mistakes that are attributable to distraction. Again, you know, when when a when a group of people work on a complex case together, we, we don't always account for these interpersonal issues. We may even take them for granted and, and think that you know it goes without saying, don't do this. But it's it's really important to formalize these concepts in order to get people to really buy into them. Um, doesn't have to you know wouldn't have to be the same for every procedure every time or anything particularly rigid. It could be you know at the at the discretion of the attending physician, but um, but just in general to to formalize it and, and set clear expectations. Um, sometimes that can be the difference between that you know something like that happening and not. 
Right. So um, this would mean that when we are doing the intubation of the patient, it would be ideal not to have the surgeon's um, music blasting at full volume and, uh, you know, everyone else in the operating room doing other things and having other conversations. Um, Exactly. (laughs) And and, and it also it also unburdens people of having to say, you know, hey, could you could you turn that down or could you stop talking about that? Because it's now it's that's the rule that's the expectation that everyone that's the standard that everyone is held to so you know if someone feels uncomfortable you know if a if a nurse or a you know a a resident feels uncomfortable speaking up to an attending now it's not a hey you know i think you're doing this wrong it's this is the rule so it it applies to everybody and then you don't have to worry about that yeah no i love that and it is amazing you know we there's a lot of variation you know, there's sometimes in the operating room where everybody is very respectful of the airway and everything's calm and quiet and everyone's helping us. But I'd say that's the exception. You know, most of the time there's a lot uh, going on and people kind of feel like, okay, they've got that and we'll just keep doing our own thing. But I think having a recognition, like you're saying, that this is an important event and we should be quiet and focused and that's going to that's going to prevent some errors. Um, I think we have a lot of, of work to do there in medicine. Tell me about no-fault safety reporting. You brought this up before, um, you know, as an important part uh, of what was developed in aviation safety. What does that mean exactly? Absolutely. So this is something that's been around for uh, uh, about 40 years now, I think. And, um, and, and again, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, if you're interested about it, anyone can, uh, there, there's, uh, anyone can go read about it online. And there's uh, FAA has made, uh, you know, certain uh, documents, which they call advisory circulars, uh, that they've published that talk about this. But it's it's one of the most important parts of aviation safety, um, which, which has really been developing a, a culture where people are encouraged to report when they make a mistake and, and to not hide it. Um, the FAA has taken the position that in order to be proactive with safety and not just reactive, they need to be able to identify trends uh, in errors and identify potential problems before they result uh, in an incident, instead of just investigating the root cause of something and say, okay, well, what was the latent safety issue here that was you know, existing the entire time? Uh, so in order to do that, they need people to report anytime there's a deficiency in the system. Uh, so this could be this could be a flaw in the design of a procedure or simply a mistake that you made as an individual. You know, maybe uh, maybe you accidentally crossed a runway uh, without clearance, but maybe a contributing factor to that is uh, the layout of the taxiway and the runway intersection is confusing and it needs to be reevaluated. So they get to look at these events on a micro level, but also on a macro level if they have. Uh, you know, 500 reports of altitude deviations going into a certain airport on a certain arrival. Uh, for one, the FAA knows that there have been at least that many deviations, but they can also compare that with data from the rest of airports of similar size in the rest of the airspace system and say, hey, there's a high probability of altitude deviations on this arrival at this altitude compared to other similar airports across the country. Maybe uh, this arrival needs to be redesigned, or maybe the clearance that the approach controller is giving needs to change. So this way, the FAA can try to identify and correct problems before they happen. But it only works if if people are willing to own up to a mistake and, and report it. So the way that the FAA does this is by saying, look, if you tell us when you've made a mistake or if there's uh, if there's been a deviation, as long as the violation wasn't uh, or, or as long as the violation was inadvertent and does not involve, you know, criminal offense, we'll consider this self-disclosure a constructive attitude toward, uh, constructive attitude toward safety. And even if you are guilty of a violation, we won't take any action against your license. So this way, when when you do make a mistake, you're incentivized to report it because your report protects you in a sense. So hospitals and healthcare institutions you know, can really benefit, in my, in my opinion, from, from this idea of identifying trends and safety and identifying potential problems uh, before they materialize by instituting a reporting program with a, a similar philosophy. Um, you know, like, for example, during transfer of care, providers are making more mistakes during a certain time of night. No one may realize that unless those mistakes get reported. But if hospital sees this trend, they can identify it and they can mitigate it before it turns into a serious problem by communicating to the staff, hey, you know, we're heads up, we're seeing a higher incidence of a failure to, you know, say restart a, a medications during transfer of care between these shifts. So be vigilant for it. And here are some strategies that you can use to make sure that 
you don't make this mistake. Then they could stop the trend before it results in a serious, you know, adverse outcome. And so then, you know, the the, the providers, the, the uh, healthcare team can read that, and by by uh, by communicating that, people are uh, you know more vigilant for it and more likely to uh, you know to to trap those errors before they happen. Yeah, that's so important. Now, when you re- as a pilot, if you're going to do this self-reporting, who do you do you report it directly to the FAA? Or do you report it like within your own company, within whichever airline you fly for? Uh, yeah, the, the, the reports uh, get sent to the FAA. So I think that's so important because I would imagine that if you had to, I'm going to just make this up. Let's say I fly for Southwest and I, uh, I'm going to use your example. I, I inadvertently cross a runway I'm not supposed to cross. If I have to go to my boss at Southwest and say, hey, I did this, and then they report it to the FAA, I'm really disincentivized because even if I'm not going to get any action against my license from the FAA, maybe my boss thinks that he's not such a good pilot. And so maybe I get less desirable routes or whatever, you know, the, 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 you know, and it's just, you know, that idea, that social pressure to not want to be seen as a, someone who, who did this thing. Whereas if you're right. reporting it directly FAA, the FAA is, is not your employ, employer, right? They, they're not controlling what routes you fly or whether you get promoted or, you know, all that stuff. And so that seems like a much better system. We don't really have that, you know, for, I'm thinking about my residents. If they made a medical error and they wanted to report it, they would really have to report it to me as their program director. And that, you know, I mean, I certainly hope they would do it, but I think they might be reluctant. Whereas if they could report it directly to the, I don't know, you know, the, um, national uh healthcare or whatever organization you know the to the um center for medicaid and medicare services or something then that would be very different because they could say listen we're not going to take any action against you we're not even going to tell your employer this happened we're just going to keep records and look for patterns etc so it seems like that's really helpful for you all that it's a direct report to the faa yeah it's really important to not incentivize or not, you know, not to encourage people to hide mistakes. The, the important thing is that accurate data gets collected and, and, and so that, you know, organizations can identify trends when they're happening. And, and there are, there are ways, there are other ways to do that. You know, um, you, you, you can, you can de-identify reports um, and just collect the data. Um, you can have uh, intermediary third parties that, uh, that are, you know that 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 receive the uh, the reports and and handle them. You know if there's an agreement between you know the hospital and the physicians. Um, you know because it, it's a win win for everybody. That you know the 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 hospital just wants uh, there to be fewer errors and better outcomes for for patients. And uh, you know physicians or, or or providers, nurses, employees don't want to get um, don't don't want to get in trouble for for making a mistake. So you sort of come to that agreement and uh, and come up with an arrangement where uh, the goal is collecting data and, you know, how do we, how do we do that with, without, uh, without incentivizing people to, to hide things. And there, there are, there are certainly, you know, um, different structures and, and different, uh, different ways to, to, to do that, to come up with that. Great. All right, Matt, this has been fabulous. Anything that we didn't cover you think we should mention before we move on? Uh, no, I, I, I think, uh, I think we covered uh, we covered everything. Um, I yeah, I, I really appreciate the the conversation and um, and uh, appreciate having me on. And uh, it, it was uh, a very very interesting conversation. Well, I totally agree. Let's move to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. What's something you would recommend the audience check out? Something fun. Uh, well, I um, I just started watching uh, the Bear on Hulu. Uh, so I'm only a couple episodes in, but uh, I've heard really, really good things, and uh, and it's it's pretty good so far. So um, uh, yeah, that's if, I guess if you're looking for a, a good show, I think that's, uh, that's that's a good one. I've heard great things. I haven't yet watched it, but it's definitely on my list as well. I'm going to recommend a show on Apple TV Plus called Swagger. I just stumbled on this because I was watching Silo and I finished Silo's amazing. I finished Silo and I was bummed because it was over and I'm waiting for the new season. And I was just scrolling through this since I was already on Apple TV plus I was scrolling through the shows and I saw this swagger show and I looked on Rotten Tomatoes and it got good reviews. And so I tried it and it, I got totally hooked. It's ongoing. I think it's in the middle of the second season. Now Um, I'm all caught up waiting for each, you know, they release one a week, but it's, it's about a, uh, kind of up and coming young, uh, initially middle school, then high school basketball player in PG County, Maryland. So local to where I am, 
um, who and and the story as he develops as a basketball player and, and and in life, and it is so well done and just gripping at times, funny at times, very poignant and emotional. It's really well done. So highly recommend Swagger on Apple TV Plus. All right, Matt, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you for all that you do for safety in aviation and that you're now applying to medicine. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.